My guest, Will Fisher, talks about being very well-liked with lots of friends through the seventh grade. Then in the eighth grade, two girls started a rumor that spread like wildfire, leaving Will's social life and popularity in the proverbial shitter. It took about three years for Will to recover, but the experience left a lasting effect. Our conversation centers around Will's story of how he learned to own who and what he is and be fully expressed in whatever that looks like. Did I say drag? Hello, Will Fisher, and welcome to the Authentic Gay Man podcast. Hello, Maddox. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you and great to have you here, and I can't wait to hear your story. Thanks. I can't wait to share it. So before we jump in, why don't you tell the listeners how you and I know each other? How did we come to be recording a podcast episode together? Yeah, so we met at the Gay Coaches Conference, which took place at Easton Mountain, a LGBTQ retreat center in upstate New York. We met there last summer, and yeah, we've been connected through the Gay Coaches Alliance, a organization dedicated to elevating the coaching industry and supporting the gay coaches in that community. Yep, that was an amazing four days that we spent together, wasn't it? Oh, so amazing. Yeah. You know, it was my first time back there in five years. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I used to run Easton Mountain and then I left and I hadn't returned for five years. And so that conference was my first time stepping back on that land. And it was so meaningful to do it with the warmth of all my gay coach brothers. Wow. I had no idea. That was my first time to ever set foot there. Mm. And, and no, I didn't know that. What a great story in and of itself. Sure. Yeah. I lived there for, for several years and uh, yeah, I have a deep connection to that place and to that land. So after the conference, I ended up staying for the whole month uh, to really reconnect with the community and, and with the land. And yeah, it was a beautiful time for me. Wow. Sounds like it. Mm. I've, I've talked to others that ha- have spent extended period of, periods of time there at it is beautiful up there. No two ways about it. And it's peaceful. You're planning to come back this summer? I, I will be there. And absolutely. In fact, I had such a good time at the last one. When I got off the plane and arrived back home, I pulled my calendar up and marked the dates right then. It was already a commitment in, in my mind. So Amazing. yeah, counting down the days. I'm so excited. And this year, I'm not coming alone this year. I have a partner that's coming with me. Wow. Fantastic. I didn't realize, is your partner a coach or moving into that industry? You know, he's kind of leaning into that. Cool. Yeah. And he loves personal growth and anything that's, um, you know, awareness oriented. So, And the conference really does cover all that. It's not just about the craft of coaching. It's about stepping into your best self and the classes are taught by amazing coaches. So yeah, you know, it didn't occur to me that it'd be a really great conference for anyone who's into personal growth. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, you're right there. Although it was all coaches, there was not a lot of conversation about coaching, particularly some, yeah. but it really was growth oriented. It, it was, it was just a once in a lifetime well, I hope not since I'm going back in May, but it felt at the time like a once in a lifetime experience. It just, it blew me away. 
Well, no two retreats are the same experience, right? It'll be a different miraculous blessing full retreat, but it'll be different than that one once in a lifetime, we could say. I had never, and I've been out for over 40 years, I had never been in an environment that lended itself to me connecting with other gay men on the mm. level that I connected. Mm. It was, in fact, it was really hard for me to leave. Mm. It, it, it just was so beyond anything that I had ever experienced. It was mm. hard for me to leave. Yeah, no, that's understandable. It's hard for many people to leave there, especially when they're first experiencing it. And I think part of the magic is that it's a gay retreat center, you know? And so when you're in that space, you're with only gay people and it becomes the default. We're so used to being in this heteronormative world where we're kind of uh, the minority, we're sometimes an outsider. And then when we create this magical space where it's just gay people celebrating their gayness, their queerness, their, their vibrancy as gay people, it's a different level of comfort and freedom that we get to experience together. It absolutely is. And I felt like it actually attracted what I would refer to as the best part of our community. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so loving and so accepting. There was no criticism or judgment or any of the other things that tend to go along with being in a gay male environment. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Mm. It felt like it was a more evolved type of GBTQ man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the GBTQ men who are dedicated to their personal growth and spiritual development journeys tend to be a certain caliber <laughs> that I certainly yes. appreciate. And, you know, when I was living and working at Easton for those years, I got to experience that, you know, consistently these amazing GBTQ men coming through the space and bringing their gifts and bringing their authenticity. And, you know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. People still show up with their muck and there's still challenges that happen there, but that the community and the, the intention of the space often is able to alchemize that. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all human, you know, yeah. so it's, it's never going to be all, as you say, you know, rainbows and unicorns, mm -hmm. but it, uh, it was a safe place to really experience those things. And then, and then gracefully and lovingly move through them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move forward. I would love to know what it means to you to be an authentic gay man. Mm, yes, I love that, that question. And really what it brings to my, my mind and my heart is what is authenticity? And Authenticity to me is expressing our truth. And when we express our truth, we are really operating from our highest self. So to be an authentic gay man means that I'm expressing my truth. And part of that truth is my truth as a gay man, is the part of me that identifies as a gay man. And to be more clear, I often use the word queer for myself personally. I, I use a queer man or queer person is often uh, how I describe myself. Um, 
And I suppose what that looks like is always evolving. My authenticity shifts as my way of being shifts. And as I peel more layers of this onion in my self-discovery process to understand who I am and who, and what my truth is, my authenticity expands and grows and changes and evolves in unexpected ways. And so to be an authentic gay man is a, a journey of surprise and flow and freedom and self-expression and something that uh, is not easy to put in a box because it's it's ever-changing. Yes, and occasional surprises. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Well said. Very well said. Thank you. Well, what we're really here to talk about is I want to know your story. I want to hear mm. about your life. And so does every listener. <laughs> what, it, what is the biggest challenge that you have been through in this lifetime? Or mm. maybe you're, you're continuing to go through on some level. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I am so blessed and I'm so grateful for the life that I have. Um, and it has been challenging at times, certainly. Um, and I still face challenges today, certainly. Um, I think the challenge I, I'll, I'll speak to that matches the context of the show uh, best is the challenge of being a young gay boy um and and what that was like for me to experience uh the the hate and and um bullying that that I experienced around the eighth grade and the story's especially present to me right now because I'm I sing with the San Diego Gaiman's chorus and we are starting a new outreach program where we're going to schools and we're going to go sing songs to these public schools for like 11, 11, 12, 13 year old kids. And um, it's looking like I'm going to share my story to this demographic. Um, and so it feels important for me to be sharing this today in preparation to be, you know, on the ground with these, these middle schoolers um, in the near future. Actually, later this month, I'm going to be doing my first gig um, doing that. So. That sounds exciting and terrifying at the same mm. time. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. You know, at that age, you don't know what you're really going to get. Certainly. No, no, I, I don't. Um, it, it can be all over the map. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would say, you know, be prepared for just about anything. Sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, we're it's a the program consists of some personal stories. Mine is the first one that gets spoken, and then some songs. So my story leads into the song "Creep" by Radiohead, which uh, I don't know if you remember that song, but it says like, "I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo." You know, you're so special. I wish I was special. It's like this very dark song, and my story leads into that because there was a time in my life. Um, in the eighth grade specifically, where I internalized a lot of those thoughts. Uh, I, I really questioned my self-worth and 
I had a lot of um, disparaging uh, self-talk happening um, as a result of what I went through. And it, it was, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I feel very blessed in this life and I, I've had so many wonderful things happen uh, throughout my life. But this, this period was a shock to my system in part because of that. So I, I had I'd been fairly popular all through elementary school. My, my older siblings are, were popular and somehow that kind of like helped me out, I think. And I just uh, always had friends and always felt really comfortable and safe at school. And that was especially important to me growing up because my, my home life was not very safe. I had, I grew up with two alcoholic parents. My brother was addicted to drugs and there was a lot of chaos in my, in my household. And so having good, stable friends and being able to spend time in their more stable homes was important to me. And just being able to go to school and feel liked and appreciated and, and seen and heard was really important to me. Um, and it was going well until this one day in eighth grade. And it was a day where I skipped school because I wasn't feeling well. And I didn't often skip school, but because I liked it so much because it was a safe place for me to be. But this day I stayed home and I came back the next day and everything was different. And people were sort of avoiding me. And when I'd walk by people, they would snicker or it appeared to me like people were talking about me, which I'd never experienced before. And I remember going at lunch to the table I always sat at, which was where the popular kids sat, you know, quote unquote. And I sat next to my best friend and he got up and he moved to another seat and wouldn't talk to me. And basically everyone was pretending like I wasn't there. And then I got to science class right after lunch and the kids in my science class, a few of them, um, our teacher was really sort of checked out. And so the, the kids had free reign and these kids started making fun of me and calling me gay. And specifically they were accusing me of, of wearing women's lingerie, which is super random. I know. And they were accusing me of other really specific and strange things. And so it was then that I realized that in that day that I stayed home from school, a couple of girls had spread these rumors about me and they spread them far and wide. And in one day, 24 hours, my social status totally dropped, you know, from, from being pretty high up on the social status to being at the very bottom. And suddenly I was a target and suddenly school was a scary place for me. And I, I lost all my friends. I had no one to sit with. I had no one to talk with. I had no one to hang out with. When I'd go home, I had no one to call and try to, you know, make plans with. And I was abandoned just totally abandoned. And it was, it really was the hardest time for me. It was, you know, I'd say if something like that happened today, I'd have some tools, I'd have some, some deeper awareness of the world and of myself at the time I didn't, and I didn't have a strong support system. I had no one to talk to and no one to turn to. 
And, and there was so much shame that I felt an embarrassment about this because I had been a successful kid up to that point. And suddenly this terrible thing happened and I didn't know what to do. And how far did that follow you, Will? You were, you said in the eighth grade? It was in the eighth grade. Yeah. Um, and so it was still present in the into the ninth grade by the 10th grade i i got clever and i switched schools and so that kind of changed things up for me i mean what was especially complicated was that i didn't know that i was gay you know this was like the early 90s um is that right yeah this this was the early 90s and i just i'd never really been educated about what that possibility was i didn't know that two men could be attracted to each other and have a relationship i didn't know, i didn't conceive of that i understood that it was this embarrassing terrible thing to be ashamed of and to avoid but i didn't understand that it might be something that could be true for me at this point um and then when the school suddenly had determined that that was true for me i had to start questioning that which was Ter- even more terrifying, right? And made me want to push it away even more. When when did you first realize you were attracted to other boys? Mm. So I'd say it was around that time. Um, it was around that time. And I I hated it. I hated it about myself. I you know, I think in part because my family was dysfunctional and my home was, home life was chaotic, I really was striving for this white picket fence reality. You know, I really imagined myself with a wife and two kids and a home and a career. And as these rumors spread and as I started to realize there was truth in this story not the lingerie part um but uh which you know no judgment for folks who buy lingerie but i, I wasn't buying women's lingerie but that, that that i was actually in fact gay when i started realizing that it was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me yeah it was like a perfect storm wasn't it mm. it all yeah. it all just happened at, at once puberty mm. you're starting mm. to realize that you weren't looking at the girls and and then this horrible these horrible rumors were there any of the friends in later years that came back around that got past it and came back around did you ever rekindle any of those friendships yeah and and honestly i, I made some new friendships by the ninth grade i sort of realized that these popular kids were going to continue to you know consider me an outcast at this point but there were other kids who were more open to my friendship um and so i was able to make a couple friends um in the ninth grade i mean very few (laughs) i went from you know big group of friends to just one or two um but that was helpful and then as i mentioned i switched schools and that was helpful because i kind of started from scratch again um in terms of folks, uh, because I switched schools, I, I'm not really in contact with them. Um, but my best friend, for example, that I mentioned who switched tables, 
uh, I, I had coffee with him not that long ago, a few years ago. Um, and so, yeah, he, he had certainly come around and, and others, you know, have connected with me on Facebook. Um, I haven't ever sort of had conversations with them, with any of them about what happened i've never confronted the, like I, you know one of the girls who spread the rumors uh is friends with me on facebook and i you know accepted the request whatever and i've never confronted her about it i, I and even in that coffee uh sit with my former best friend i didn't confront him either um and i don't know maybe you know as i'm sharing that maybe that is something that might support my my full and complete healing from it but well and, yeah, point, I'm, I'm wondering you know rather than maybe a full-on consultation uh, con- the um confrontation. confrontation what it might be like to just approach them with curiosity hmm. yeah to just just ask you know what what was that about i i just want to understand i you know yeah I, I don't have any, you know, are you, are you past any hard feelings at this point is. Yeah, I, I am. I don't harbor any bad feelings. I mean, one of the girls who spread the rumors was an African-American girl and she was the only, she was one of the only African-Americans at the school. And so I, you know, imagine that that was a challenging experience for her. Um, so certainly I have a lot of compassion um, for for her and perhaps some of her motives were, you know, getting attention off of her as someone who was different or other. Um, and in general, I just, I, I know that it was a different time, right? Where people didn't have as much sensitivity to gay people and issues that gay people face. Um, there was a lot of naivete, a lot of ignorance on the, on the part of the people who spread the rumors and the people who, you know, believed them and, and used them against me. Um, so, uh, you know, I also just blame like that age, like the eighth grade is a time where you're just trying to like survive, keep your head above water and people are malicious so if spreading a rumor and talking bad about someone else is helping them feel like they belong and feel like they're not the target you know it's understandable so i i i I get it and well it's understandable but not really excusable that's fair yeah and you know that's why i'm really grateful for this opportunity to go speak at schools to make sure that kids think about the impact that their words have on others, you know, and, and think about the, the potential trauma that they can cause simply by singling someone out. How do you think it would land for one or two of those people, the most prime, I mean, the ones that were, you know, the, the most in your life, if you merely let them know that, that their actions hurt you? Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be, it'd be an, an interesting experiment. I imagine that it didn't occur as much of a thing for them. And they didn't realize the impact that it had on me. Um, and I imagine that 
if and when confronted by that, they would be sitting with a lot of uh, guilt. Yeah. Well, and they, they probably don't even now know the full impact. No. And, and talking to them about it, the reasoning wouldn't be to try to lay guilt on them. Yeah. It would yeah. be about your healing and perhaps their healing as well. You yeah. Know? Yeah. We we yeah. never know what somebody is is carrying. Yeah. Because we're, you know, even when we're young like that, on some level, we're aware, you know, I, I, I bullied a kid when I was probably maybe around that age. Mm. I was bullied so much that I just needed one little shred of power. And, and so mm. I picked somebody weaker than me and I, I mm. bullied him and I carried like the regret mm. and the guilt of that for probably, well, 45 years. Wow. Here, here about, I don't know, five years ago, I finally found him on social media and wrote him a note and um, just apologized as deeply as I could. Didn't ask wow. for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Just told him that I'd had a lot of time to think about it and that I was very aware that my actions were very wrong, mm. that I had a tremendous amount of regret about it. And that I was deeply sorry for what I had done. Took mm. him two weeks to answer. And when he finally answered, it was just two words. Mm. Thank you. Wow. That's all he said. It's mm. beautiful. And, and I have to believe that that was perhaps as healing as it was for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. It was, you know, I had I'd searched for him for a long time, but couldn't remember how to spell his last name. Mm. And then one day I came across his name and I was looking at one of my high school annuals and came across his name and went, well, no wonder you haven't been able to find him. <laughs> and then what about the folks who, the folks who bullied you? Have you circled back? You know, you were asking me if I've connected with those folks. You know, I lived, I left that little hometown forever and a day ago and stopped going to class reunions decades ago. And, mm. you know, if if the opportunity presented itself, I wouldn't have a problem sitting down with them and having a conversation about it. I don't hold any energy on it anymore. It was, yeah. it was single-handedly. I mean, it, it lasted. It wasn't just a year or two. It lasted for most of the latter part of of elementary school, all of middle school, and all of high school, and even part of college. Oh my gosh! Madison. It lasted for many years, and um, mm. I've come full circle. You know, I, I can look back now and see perhaps what the universe was trying to do for me. Mm. You know, I, 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 I look at now nobody fucks with me. Mm -hmm. Nobody fucks with me. And, and it's not because I beat people up or anything. It's not like I have a reputation. It's just, I don't know. It's just an energy that I put off. I guess it's taken me a long time to even discern that I used to say, you know, my God, do I have a sign on my forehead that I, that everybody sees but me? And it says, don't fuck with me <laughs> because nobody ever messes with me. 
<laughs> and I, there was a time in my life when I just probably maybe in my mid thirties where I hit a wall, you know, I'd mm. had employers that had bullied me. Wow. I, it, it went on way even beyond high school, college. Mm. It went on and it was in my mm. mid thirties one day when I just couldn't take anymore. Mm. The whole world had been wiping their feet on me like I was a doormat and I just couldn't take anymore. And I just made this declaration that is, you know, I, I call it my Scarlet O'Hara moment. Mm. You know, I made this declaration as God is my witness. I'll never be treated poorly ever again. And I wow. just put off an energy that evidently says that because nobody ever pulls anything like that anymore, wow. ever. Wow. Wow. But I look back and I think, you know, it's not like I have a chip on my shoulder. It's not like, oh, come on, knock that off. It is just I'm very clear that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take shit off of anybody. You know, yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna fuck with me, you better have it a knife or a gun. Otherwise, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> and I'm not a fighter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fighter, but I I have learned to stand up for myself. But I, you know, I've come to where I could tell you that I would never want to relive what I went through and I would not wish it on my worst enemy. Sure. But I also wouldn't trade for the experience at this point in my life. Mm. It contributed to me. And now what I can see is such a powerful and positive way mm -hmm. that I would not, if it, it, I wouldn't take it back if I could mm -hmm. not now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm there yet with mine. I I can see certainly the resilience that it gave me. I can see the strength that it demanded of me. I can see how when I did come to the understanding that I am gay and started owning that, you know, that, that whole experience mm, helped me become more committed to that part of me and to committed to my truth. I, and so I, I can love this. Of, yeah. Hmm. Can we unpack this a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Well, you said, you know, when I realized I was gay and I, I owned it and, and I kind of want to break that down in, in segments, I guess, was what I'm thinking. Cause I can recall certainly coming to the point where I could say, yes, I'm gay. I want to be with a man. I want to be sexual with a man. I want to be in a relationship with a man. I'm not. I love women as human beings. Some of my best friends are women. I do not want to be married to or sleep with a woman. I could own that part of it, but I can remember a time in my early years. I had been out for a period of time. I'm walking down the street one day and this car of men whizzes by and they're all hanging out the windows and they scream, faggot. Mm -hmm. And I was just mortified. I mean, mm -hmm. it just mortified me. Mm -hmm. And time went on and there was a time later in life, probably 20 years later, when a similar situation happened. Car whizzes by and, and I get, you know, slammed with some things like that. Faggot, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was kind of like, um, yes, and your point. You know, <laughs> All right. It, it, it didn't uh devastate me or you yeah. know, it, it was and so I'm kind of wanting to you you kind of talked about it like it happened all at the same time, compressed. 
But mm. even though you could say I'm gay, were you really comfortable in your skin at that point? And could you let, let's un, I mean, I've kind of just given you a cliff notes version of how I experienced that, but let's yeah. unpack that a little bit. Cause I think yeah. that's a real important part of your story. What do you think? Sure. Yeah, no. And it certainly was a longer journey. Yeah. It was a, a slow progress, you know, in, in terms of my ability to really own it, to really be confident about it. I think that own it conversation is so important and, and it's owning that we're gay. It's owning that we're a top or a bottom. It's owning that we're, we're, you know, polyamorous or that we're a, a trans person. It, it uh, This is a topic that we're not having nearly enough of, and that is owning whatever it is that we mm-hmm. got going on with us. It may not have anything to do with our sexuality at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was a hairdresser for 40 years and I would give a client a new haircut. And before she'd walk out the door, I'd get, I'd say, girl, before you walk out that door, you need to own that haircut. <laughs> because if, that. if you don't, every friend you've got will shred your ass to pieces. <laughs> oh my God, why did you do that? You know, but if you own it and, and totally. I think this, you know, it, it plays a big role, of course, as in our sexuality. But this own it topic goes when we can own, really, truly own our sexuality. My mm-hmm. God, what could we own beyond that? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's it it's the power of declaration too. So you know, I loved in your story how there was just a point in time where you had that Scarlett O'Hara moment of like. No one's going to fuck with me anymore as of now, period. And you put your foot down. And that is, in a sense, the same energy of owning it, right? It's like owning your value, owning your worth. And in declaring it in that moment, you were right. People didn't fuck with you anymore. They didn't. I mean, I just must have put off an energy because, Mm -hmm. you know, it it was that moment when I fully embraced self-respect. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I believe everything comes from the inside and works out. So when I totally embraced my self-respect, yep. that set a, an example and the rest of the world just followed suit. That's it. And that's, you know, that's- we, we think we're trying to get everybody else's acceptance out here. But when we can fully accept ourselves, all this out here just suddenly falls into place magically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a sense, as queer people as as gbtq people we have the the implicit demand to practice that right we have this truth that society has told us is wrong or at least during the time that we were growing up the society's main message to us was that it's not good to be gay that it's wrong to be gay that you'll be an outcast if you're gay and then we have to be with that truth and decide whether or not we're going to own it or not. And in going through that process, that internal process of challenging it, trying to push it away, really exploring it, realizing that it's not going away, and then deciding whether or not we want to be with it, then finally coming to the other side and owning it and declaring it, it in some ways, I think, gives GBTQ folks, LGBTQ folks, a, a leg up on owning who we are. It's one of the gifts that we get to bring is this understanding and this practiced application of owning all the parts of ourselves. So there's where I want to go 
right there. We're talking in generalities now. I want to hear your owning it story and what was the result as you really begin to own mm. who you are, whether it be your sexuality or other things that you owned. Mm. How did that change your life? What what came in as you really begin to own Will Fisher? Yeah, thanks. I I I, it's been a long process and continues to be a process as I discover new parts of myself, right? And then own those. But I'd say, you know, going back to the eighth grade, and then, you know, it was when I switched schools in the 10th grade that I actually met a gay person. My best friend had a dad who came out as gay. And so then I started to see an example of what it could be to be gay and that I could be gay without it being, you know, this terrible experience. And so it was a slower process. It wasn't, you know, one moment of suddenly I'm standing on the mountaintop and owning my sexuality, but I started to think maybe this thing that I've been trying to avoid, trying to push away, trying to hide from isn't so bad. And maybe me starting to experience it and, and be with it might help me not have to face this, these demons, these, like this push and pull. And so slowly I started telling people, I think I'm gay. And I think it was important that it was a slow process of owning it. Right. It was just step by step. And as I was able to take steps and see that I, I was still safe and that I wasn't, you know, kicked out of the tribe, so to speak, that made me feel more comfortable to own it even more, you know? And, and I, I just want to speak to that, you know, the, the, the reason that we are often so terrified of expressing parts of ourselves that we believe are seen as bad or unmoral or worthy of being an outcast is, is this part of our brain that wants to stay in the tribe, right? That this, this human brain that wants to survive that believes that if we are different if we are other if we are less than then the tribe will kick us out so it's it's and if we get kicked out then we're you know we we don't have access to the fire and we get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger so it's like part of our mammal brain that wants us to belong and it's so that's a very hard thing to hack and so my hacking process of that piece of me that wants to fit in, wants to belong, wants to be loved, wants to have everyone like me, was slowly let go of as I continued to tell people and received their acceptance, or at least didn't have my life turned upside down. So there's something I want to call out that you said that sets your story. I've heard a lot of coming out stories. And you have just shared something that sets your story apart. And I kind of want to play up on it. Hmm. You said you started to say to some of the people around you, I think I might be gay. Now, in my own story, and most of the stories I've heard, you know, we kept that shit a secret until we figured it out and we knew for sure. And hmm. we weren't going to tell anybody until we, you know, and, and, you approached it a completely different way. And as you shared with people, I think I might be gay, how did they respond? Fortunately, in my experience, folks received it well. Um, I, I I didn't have any experience where, well, I think the, the most challenging was an ex-girlfriend who, you know, 
personalized it and and felt like, oh, what does that mean about when we were together? And are you gay because you're not attracted to me or something like that? But but generally, um, yeah, people were supportive. And I think that it was as I took these steps and received support that I was able to take the next step and the next step. And so, you know, as as I have evolved in in the way I identify, I mean, I you know, I do drag. And at some point I had already came out to my family as a, as a gay person, but at some point I had to let, I didn't have to, but I decided to let them know that I do drag. So I, in a sense, came out as a drag queen, you know, and had to own that part of myself. Um, and my, the, the way that I've, uh, been with these parts of my identity in terms of sexuality and gender expression has been an evolution. And I'd say it continues to be as I as I keep learning about these new aspects of self and and decide who I want to share them with. Well, do you find that as you own those parts of yourself, that people are drawn to that? And I don't mean gay people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like going back to what I was saying around uh, LGBTQ folks having an upper hand in owning things, you know, we are practiced in it. And so folks crave authenticity, you know, folks crave the expression of their truth. And so I think many folks can see those of us who have gone through that storm, you know, who have who have fought that battle and come out on the other side thriving and vibrant, they can see us as beacons of hope for the possibility of them to express their true self, to live in their authenticity, right? And that's you know something that has drawn me to the personal growth world, to coaching, is that I can feel that draw towards my energy of, of authenticity and self-expression. And so I love to be able to share what I've learned in my journey and support people in their journey as a way to sort of give back. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think that as we unpack this and talk about it, I'm, I'm, you know, that owning who you are is such a vital part of being that authentic human being, mm. whatever label, what GBTQ, whatever we want to put on it, but just being an authentic human being that owning it. I, I came out over 40 years ago and for the first five years, I lived in a small central Texas town where I had to be kind of pretty closeted, but I moved to a larger city and this was, I mean, this was a long time ago. I moved to a large, I moved to Austin, Texas in 86. Mm-hmm. And I I was out, out in every regard. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, I have owned it for so long that I kind of forget mm. what it's like to not own it. Mm. But I but recently I've had an experience. I've been, I'm in a new relationship that I've been in now for about a little over five, between five and six months. And we have a, a very, very popular local bike and hike and bike trail here in close proximity to where I live. Mm-hmm. And we walk almost every day on that trail together early in the morning. And we, we walk holding hands. 
Mm-hmm. And it has been absolutely like it has stunned me mm. at how just that owning who we are walking on the local trail has attracted so many people to us. Wow. Like mm. I've walked on that trail for over 15 years by myself as a single person. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm walking on the same damn trail with the same people coming and going, but I got a boyfriend in tow and we're holding hands and people are just drawn to us. They stop us mm-hmm. and want to talk to us. And mm-hmm. it's, and I mean, I didn't see that coming. I really didn't, but I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that they're drawn to us because we're we're fully expressed mm-hmm. and and that's attractive no matter who you are that's just attractive yeah absolutely i mean it's what our souls want right it's what our unique expressions of consciousness want is to be fully expressed to express the deepest truth of who we are and so anytime that a, a another soul sees that they're attracted to it because they want it themselves and they see a glimmer of the possibility of it in you they see it mirrored back to them so it, it makes perfect sense to me so you've talked about drag is that a, a a form of expression for you? Uh-huh. Is yeah. that something inside of you that it that comes out or that you get in touch with when you're in drag that isn't present when you're in street clothes? Yeah, absolutely. That drag gives me access to a a piece of myself. Yeah, that that I don't connect with as easily when I'm in yeah street clothes and specifically it's a it's a larger than life sort of energy it's a it's a power it's it's often a a a divine feminine power um but it depends on the look it depends on the drag you know there are some times where I'm in drag and it's connecting me to rather than divine feminine uh, divine creature or divine masculine or divine, you know, so it's, but it's some kind of, uh, archetype that, that drag gives me access to, and it's a, a, a power and an energy. Um, and it's, it's magic. I mean, drag is magic. It is magic. I, I have never, you know, put myself in the category of, of drag queen, but during a holiday or two, Halloween or two, you know, I, I have been in, some aspect of of drag a wig and lipstick and you know something of that nature and yes it reaches deep into my being and sources something that would not be sourced mm-hmm. otherwise and it's not really like a fake persona not for me it's not it's not like this fake persona that comes out it's something very very real that is completely unexpressed in in That's- my being Yes, something extremely freeing. I I haven't done it in decades. You know, it's not like it's not like something I, you know, like an an affinity that I have. But the times I have done it, it connected me to a very remote part of myself. Mm. And it had this totally magical feeling to it. I always say to somebody that says, oh, no, I've never done drag. I'm like, you have no idea what you're missing. Absolutely. Everybody should do it at least once because it will put you in touch with something that you had no idea 
was it even in there? Of course, that scares the shit out of some people finding sure. something that they have no idea is in there. Sure. It didn't sure. scare me. It was like, what's in there? Let's go find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised by that. That's fabulous. Yeah, no, I've seen amazing, amazing transformations of energy as a result of drag. So part of my my legacy from my time at Eastern Mountain is the drag closet, which I don't know if you you checked out uh, during the conference, but right I outside. I did not. I did not go in there, but I saw men emerge from it. Sure. With Yeah. And at one point there were some red high heel slippers with feathers on the front of them, slides. Oh, they were... Slippers. And and I I I I walked over. Somebody had left him sitting there, you know, in the room where you can't take shoes. And I went over and just slipped my foot. I have huge feet, and that's <laughs> one of the reasons I never really got serious in drag because uh-huh. I have huge feet. And uh-huh. I slipped my foot down into that thing, and it fit me perfectly. And I was oh, like, Cinderella! Oh my God! Cinderella. In that moment, there was like this rush that happened inside <laughs> of me. It was it was crazy. So I, I want to. We're, we're having a great time and a party here, but let's let's come back to your story because i want to hear as you have become more fully expressed owned who you are Mm. what has that generated in your life what's been the the payoff of Mm. you know owning who you are and and being more fully expressed yeah well it really circles me back to the story from the eighth grade, you know, where I felt like I could never be who I actually was. I felt like I needed to pretend that I was someone who I wasn't. If I ever wanted friends, if I ever wanted connection, if I ever wanted to belong. So, so the belief was, if I'm going to have to have friends, I have to, to do this. I, I have to fit in. Yeah. And be someone who I'm not. Yeah. I definitely have to deny this part of me that they're, that they've determined is true. I have to like, make sure that goes away completely. And so, you know, from, from that standpoint, I, I'd say that's, that's how it was at one point was this idea that I can't be who I am. And now that I've come to a place of owning all of who I am, what it gives me is confidence. What it gives me is freedom. What it gives me is deep, authentic connection. So, you know, in the past, there may have been connection that was based on a false version of myself. So now when I'm able to connect with someone, it's because they truly are attracted or interested in me for my authentic self, not for this false self that I'm putting on in order to belong. And there's nothing more valuable and powerful than than authentic validation that you receive when you have that connection. Right. So there there's nothing that makes us feel like we belong more than what you just described. You know, there's, I would say fitting in is where you carve parts of yourself away to be around other people. Mm. Whereas belonging is when we get to show up fully expressed and people want to come and sit by us just by the nature of who we are. Yes. And we can, we can rest in our being we can rest in just being who we are instead of trying to do trying to put on airs and and like you said fit in right we can just be and that's such a gift so with that comes peace comes calm comes wholeness completion i mean everything i think is 
possible when you are able to step into your truth and own who you are. Everything is possible. So this has been amazing, Will. I would, I'd love to know what wisdom bomb you could drop on the listeners about you, you have this experience. What tip wisdom could you share about how they could more fully own who they are and Mm. step into that fully expressed power? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think what comes to mind based on this conversation, first off is to be in the process of it to to recognize that each small step is a small step that is bringing you closer to full ownership and to give credit to that you know that it doesn't have to be overnight that someone you know declares to the whole world that they are blank that they can take a step and then another step and another step at helping regulate their nervous system along the way And then the other thing I'm present to is this idea of the power of declaration. So at some point to be able to own it and to declare it in that way, that this is who I am and, and that is okay. And I don't care if others are going to judge me for it or have their own potentially negative opinions about it. This is it. This is who I am and I'm going to be with it. So I feel like those are the two themes that came up in this conversation is to trust the process and allow the process to be without rushing it or feeling a need that it all has to happen at once. And to ultimately, ideally come to a place of declaration. Well, and that declaration can start off being a declaration just to self. You don't have to stand on a rooftop and blurt it out just yet. Yep. Stand and look in your own eyes in the mirror and make that declaration until one day you're ready for somebody else to hear it besides just you. Beautiful. Yeah. Let that declaration expand and grow and get louder and bigger. And and it would. It, it absolutely would. If you keep declaring it, it will grow and get bigger. And there'll be a point where you can't not stand and scream it from a rooftop. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm, beautiful words of wisdom. I absolutely love that. <laughs> this has been amazing. No, oh, it's been a total pleasure. Yeah, thank you for creating the space and asking such beautiful questions and yeah, allowing me to share my story today. Yeah, I just really thank you for in, in, in involving yourself in the in the conversation. How about some rapid fire questions? Oh, sure. All righty, here we go. When was the last time you cried in front of another GBTQ man? Um, at the chorus, yeah, just uh, probably last week. <laughs> we sing songs together. You know, one of the beautiful things about being in the San Diego Gamers Chorus is we get to sing songs. And for me, often singing songs allows my emotions to flow. And so we were singing this song called Stand Up, which is from this movie about Harriet Tubman. And it's just so beautiful and so powerful that I couldn't help but cry, which made it really hard to sing the song. Um, but my chorus uh, friends, you know, they they are very uh, accepting, loving and supportive. So there's no judgment there at all. That's beautiful. Yeah, I sang in the Turtle Creek Chorale uh, 
30 years ago for about three seasons. And it was a magical experience. Mm, I love absolutely magical. Mm. I have very many fond memories. All right. What is the one thing that you hide or keep secret because you fear that if someone knew they would judge you? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a bold question. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> Let's see. Wow. Um, what is one thing that I hide because I'm afraid people would judge me? Um, gosh, there's not a lot, Maddox. I, I am sort of tr- having trouble thinking of something that I, that I'm hiding from the world. Um, Ah, let's see. I, you know, I think one of the things I don't share with a lot of people is uh, that I sometimes do tantric practices. So I do semen retention, for example. Um, yeah, that's not something I readily share. So I'll share it here to your listeners. That's sometimes I'll do a, a tantric practice of semen retention, um, which is a practice to mm, help cultivate erotic energy that you can then transmute into creative energy. Um, and it's not easy. <laughs> and how, it's, how long do you retain? My longest was during COVID and it was three months. And during that three months, there was a lot of self-pleasure. So it wasn't like I just shut sex off. You actually build the sexual energy, you build the erotic energy, but then rather than ejaculating it, you're recirculating it through the body. And then eventually after the three months, I, on a full moon, at on um, at the ocean, I I had my my climax ritual. Wow! And that how's that? How's that after, for a secret? <laughs> after three that months, was, that had to be pretty intense. It was definitely one of the most epic, intense, amazing, magical climaxes of my life. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Wow! You know, I I understand doing that in small ways. I've never done anything quite like that, but mm. I know for for me. As soon as I got in this relationship, I completely stopped any self-play, no masturbation. Sure. Yeah. I just decided I wanted to save all that energy for, you know, my yeah. new partner. Yeah. And nice. um, and it and yeah, it's a real thing, you know. It's a real thing. I I don't know since we go for a few days or a week w- without that happening. It's um, now I've never gone for super long periods of time, but um, it definitely builds, builds and builds and builds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great answer! Thank you for <laughs> sure. Glad I was able to dig one up. That was juicy enough. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely okay. Final question: At the end of your life, when you were mm. about to take your last breath, mm. what is the feeling? that you most want to have in that moment? Peace. Just peace. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just wow. I, I could I could feel like the emotional emotion coming off of, of that mm. when you said that. I'm an empath. I could totally feel mm. that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. And I think um you know, a, a, a lot of our work is to to get there, to get yes. to a place where when death happens, we peacefully receive it. Yes, I think mm. you're right. Mm. Well, Mr. Will Fisher, this has been amazing. 
Such a pleasure, Coach Maddox. I love you and I love your podcast. I'm so grateful for the ways that you're supporting me as I'm making mine. And I just, I really appreciate you and I appreciate, you know, this opportunity to. Well, I appreciate and love you as well. And, and it, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to support in whatever way I can. Um, one thing I want to leave you with though is that, and, and yes, I say this at the end of every, episode but i i've never said it when it wasn't true and that is you know i in my eyes you are an authentic gay queer whatever queer i will you said queer earlier so I, you are are an authentic queer man thank you and bravo to you thank you bravo to you thank you